0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Well, we have been working through the book of acts passage by passage and today the next passage we come to is acts 2 22 through 41 and let's pray before we go any further lord what a comfort it is to know that even in the midst of all the the storms and the trials of our lives you are our rock you are faithful lord you are the one in whom we can trust as we've just sung. Lord, what a blessing it is for us to have a God like you who is faithful the way you are faithful, sovereign the way you're sovereign, good and gracious and infinitely wise the way you are all of those things. Lord, I pray that even if we can't understand everything, that you would help us to trust in what we do understand, Lord. To interpret what is unclear by what is clear. And what is clear is who you are, Lord. Help us to interpret everything else according to that central paradigm. And Lord, ask for us this morning, Lord, please open our eyes to see everything you want us to see in this passage of Scripture. And not only to see, but to be changed. In every way, you want us to be changed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, One of the tendencies that we seem to have in this modern age is that we're always looking for better ways to do things. Ways that are easier and more effective and more efficient. And that mentality has certainly served us well in many areas, I believe. Uh, I know that I, for one, uh, for example, am very glad... Uh, that the washing machine has been invented so that I don't have to rub my clothes on a washboard in order to get them clean. I'm also very glad that indoor plumbing has been invented so I don't have to go outside to an outhouse in the middle of winter to use the facilities. I'm also very glad that the assembly line has been invented so that cars are in a price range that most people can afford. And uh, to bring things more up to date, I am certainly glad for the invention of the smartphone, which for me at least seems to be connected to virtually every area of my life, uh, making it all more efficient and more convenient for me. And so there's no question that innovation has changed our lives in some incredible ways. We've even uh, we've certainly been quite successful in our attempt to try to find better ways to do things, ways that are easier, more convenient. Yet, unfortunately, there are many who have taken that mentality and applied it to church in a very unhealthy way. Uh, one area where we see this is in a movement known as liberalism. And I'm not talking about political liberalism, but rather theological liberalism. It started back in the 1800s when a growing number of theological scholars began to view certain biblical doctrines as, well, I guess, inconvenient to believe. Uh, For example, according to these scholars, modern people, sophisticated modern non-Neanderthal people, Don't want to believe in miracles anymore. So let's just stop believing in miracles. And of course, in order to do that, we're going to also have to stop believing in the inerrancy of the Bible that the Bible is truth without any mixture of error. And on and on they went, trying to eliminate all of the doctrines that people might find difficult to believe. Um, perhaps a good word for what they thought they were doing, was optimizing. Kind of like someone might optimize their computer by getting rid of all the junk files and the unnecessary programs. These liberal scholars sought to optimize Christianity. The only problem is that the teachings that they thought were unnecessary hindrances to Christianity actually turned out to be the core tenets of Christianity. So that without these doctrines, the whole edifice of Christianity falls to the ground. So that's theological liberalism in a nutshell. In their quest to optimize Christianity, they've actually ended up losing Christianity. And yet, they're not the only ones who have taken our modern mentality of innovation and applied it to the church in an unhealthy way. Another movement has done that as well, one that I'll call pragmatism. This movement uh, doesn't usually deny the central tenets of Christianity, but it certainly downplays many of them, especially those that are more offensive. And the problem from what I've seen and the the sermons I've listened to and even in some cases the, the churches I have been in attendance at from time to time, the problem is often not so much what they do say, but often what they don't say. The foundational Christian truths that are downplayed, such as sin and judgment and the need for repentance... Things like that. Instead, it seems they prefer to keep the conversation almost exclusively focused on people's felt needs, uh, the desires that people have for things like joy and fulfillment and peace in their lives. They've also taken advantage of the fact that most people really like to be entertained, and so they've made their Sunday morning gatherings very entertaining in some cases one might even get the impression that entertainment is the main reason why many people go to these churches so as a result the ministry of these churches is quite often a mile wide and about an inch deep so that's pragmatism And there's a common element that both liberalism and pragmatism are missing. These two movements are certainly different from each other in many ways, but they're alike in that they're both missing one critical element, the gospel. They've either denied the gospel outright or they've downplayed the gospel more subtly. But either way, the full robust gospel in all of its richness is often missing to a large degree. Other things have been substituted in its place. And I just feel like I have to ask the question, could this be why Christianity is so weak in our country? Like, Could this be why the influence of Christianity has been waning for some time now? certainly something you have to wonder about. And yet here in our main passage of Acts 2, we see something quite different. To set the context, Jesus has just commanded his disciples in chapter 1 to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in the surrounding regions around Jerusalem, and to the ends of the earth. And then two weeks ago, in the first half of chapter 2, we saw that the Holy Spirit came upon the early Christians and brought about some very unique phenomena, such as the sound of a mighty rushing wind and these tongues of fire that were above their heads and and these early Christians speaking in languages that they had never learned before. And here in Acts 2, 22 through 41, the events that have been unfolding reach their climax. Peter preaches the gospel and the church is born. That's the main idea of this passage, that Peter preaches the gospel and the church is born. Everything happening here can basically be boiled down to that. And if that sounds like a, a simple statement, it's because it's, it is. The simplicity of that statement reflects the simplicity Of the text. The church came into existence through the simple, straightforward, no frills, no gimmicks, apparently even spontaneous preaching of the gospel. And that from a simple fisherman. Imagine that, right? Like this simple fisherman named Peter just preached the gospel and the church was born. And by the way, what a difference we can see here as we compare the Peter of Acts 2 with the Peter from before Jesus' crucifixion. And back in Luke 22, we saw Peter behaving in a rather cowardly manner. When Jesus is arrested, Peter denies even knowing him. And he denies that not just once, but three times. And one of those denials was even in a conversation with a servant girl, like one of the lowest people in the social order of ancient society. And get, Peter's so scared of this, this little girl that he won't even admit to her that he knows Jesus and that he's one of Jesus' followers. But here in Acts 2, Peter's basically a different person, isn't he? Cowardly Peter is nowhere to be found. And instead, we find a Peter who's courageous and who boldly testifies to a crowd of thousands about Jesus. And of course, that difference is a result of the Holy Spirit. Like, what a difference the Holy Spirit makes in a person's life. No wonder Jesus told his disciples back in chapter 1 to not even attempt, not even try to engage in their mission of being witnesses until the Spirit had come. And so what we're seeing here in Acts 2, guys, this isn't Peter, okay? This is the Spirit working through Peter in a truly marvelous way. And may he be pleased to work through us as well. So what did Peter talk about in his sermon? Well, you may remember from a couple of weeks ago that the crowds that were present asked the question in verse 12, what does this mean? The sound of rushing wind came from heaven and, and the tongues of fire were above each of the early Christians and, and they were all speaking in languages they had never heard. And so the people, quite understandably, who, who are seeing all of this, they want to know, what does this mean? So Peter spends the first part of his sermon verses 14 through 21, answering their question. He explains that what they see happening is a partial fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel 2, 28 through 32, where Joel speaks of the various signs that will mark the day of the Lord, as he calls it. This day of the Lord is actually an era that begins when Jesus ascends into heaven and will conclude one day when Jesus returns to this earth. And according to Joel, this day is one where God's spirit is poured out on all flesh, right? Verse 17. And one where everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 21. So these unique phenomena Of Acts 2 are intended to be signs that the day of the Lord has come. God's doing something really big. That's the message here. And Peter explains it further in verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus is the genuine Messiah that these Jews have been waiting for. This national hero who was prophesied throughout the Old Testament is finally here. The many miracles that Jesus performed attest to that, Peter argues. And yet, his ministry was quite different than what most people were expecting. This hero, who was expected to lead God's people to cast off the shackles of Roman oppression and and usher in a new golden age of prominence and prosperity for Israel actually ended up being executed in the most painful and shameful and humiliating manner, crucifixion. And yet, according to Peter, all of this was actually according to God's plan. Jesus was delivered up you know, to die on a cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Because, you see, our sins required payment, somebody had to endure the punishment for our sins. And typically, of course, that somebody would be us, since it was our sins. But Jesus actually endured that punishment in our place. And we're not just talking here about the the physical agonies of crucifixion, unimaginable as they were, but also the full force of the, the wrath of God the Father. Against sin. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath until there wasn't a drop left. And yet that wasn't the end of it. As Peter explains in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Peter quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11, in order to show that this is precisely what David predicted. And Peter actually spends a total of nine verses explaining Jesus' resurrection and showing how it's a fulfillment of David's prophecy. And that level of emphasis is actually quite normal for preaching that that we're going to see in the book of Acts. And, And you might wonder why. Like, why would Peter spend just... One verse talking about the crucifixion, and then nine verses talking about the resurrection. Have you ever wondered that? And of course, we do want to keep in mind that Luke here, the author of Acts, is presenting us with a summary of Peter's sermon, not a word-for-word transcript, but still, assuming this summary accurately reflects the emphases of the original sermon, why such a focus on the resurrection? And I believe the answer is tied to the fact that Jesus' resurrection served to vindicate him and show that he really was the Messiah. And that would have been a hard pill to swallow for many of these Jews since they were expecting a Messiah who was quite different than Jesus. A Messiah who would lead them to political and military triumph. NOT ONE WHO WOULD DIE THE SHAMEFUL DEATH OF A CRIMINAL. I MEAN, EVEN THE SUGGESTION OF THAT WOULD HAVE SOUNDED SCANDALOUS TO THE ANCIENT JEWISH MIND. YET JESUS IS VINDICATED BY HIS RESURRECTION. HIS RESURRECTION SHOWED THAT HE WAS INDEED THE GENUINE MESSIAH SENT FROM HEAVEN TO RESCUE GOD'S PEOPLE though not in the way that they expected to be rescued. Peter then explains in verses 33 through 35 that Jesus was exalted to the Father's right hand where he now sits ruling and reigning over this world. And then Peter brings it all together in verse 36. Everything he said throughout this whole sermon leads us to this one truth. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Jesus is Lord in the sense that he's the master over the entire universe. The one with all authority and dominion and power. And he's also the Christ, which literally means Messiah or anointed one. The one sent by God to rescue his people. And so there you yeah, go, right? That is the message Peter preached. That's the gospel. And it's the only gospel that has the power to save, as we're about to see in the subsequent verses. But first, let's just pause for a moment and take note of something. Notice what the gospel's not. First, the gospel's not rules for moral living. It's not about how we can be a good person or how we can earn acceptance and favor in God's sight through our own moral efforts. Strictly speaking, the gospel isn't even a message about us at all. It's about Jesus. It's not a message about us and what we should be doing, but a message about Jesus and what he's already done on our behalf. Also, in addition to that, the gospel's not merely the message that God has a wonderful plan for your life and that you can enjoy great joy and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction and hope in your life if you'll embrace that plan. Of course, there's nothing false about that statement, but that statement itself never quite makes it. To the gospel. It's kind of like a, a rocket that's trying to take off, and you, you see all this smoke and hear the sound and and all, all this stuff, but it never quite achieves liftoff. And the reason it never achieves liftoff is because our main problem of sin is never explained, nor the judgment that goes along with our sin. And God's remedy isn't explained either. How Jesus atoned for our sins through his death on the cross and then rose from the dead to secure our rescue. So if you don't have the problem and you don't have the remedy, then we have to conclude that you don't have the gospel. So Peter's sermon is quite valuable because it defines the gospel for us. Both what it is and what it isn't. And continuing on in Acts 2, look at how Peter's audience responds to his gospel preaching. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Think about that phrase. They were cut to the heart, it says. That's the phrase there that this just jumps out to me. They were grieved by this. Devastated even. They realized for the first time that they had killed their Messiah. His blood was on their hands. And guys, there's a, a very real sense in which we're not really all that different from them because even though we of course weren't literally there in the crowds calling out for Jesus' crucifixion it was still our sins that made it necessary for Jesus to die our sins are what ultimately put Jesus on the cross it's really not all that comfortable to think about but we are just as culpable as they were. And until you you feel the weight of your sin in that way, you're not ready to be saved. I've heard it said that conviction of sin is the key used by the Holy Spirit to open the door or open the heart to salvation. In order to be saved, you first have to be convicted by the Holy Spirit of your sin. It's kind of like a prerequisite course in college. You know, most colleges, of course, require prerequisites. And the the reason for that is hopefully obvious, right? If you want to take biology 301, well, you really need the material in biology 201, for example, to have 301 make sense to you. Like if you try to take 301 without 201, you're not going to understand the material. It's not going to make much sense. And likewise, spiritually, the good news of the gospel won't make much sense if you haven't first grasped the bad news of your sin. You have to grasp the fact that regardless of how good of a person you have viewed yourself to be up until that point, you're actually not good at all. (laughs) The Bible says that you're actually quite vile and that God views even your best works and your best moral achievements as nothing but filthy rags. That's a metaphor that comes straight from Isaiah 64, 6. And until you come to terms with that and... View yourself in that way, being cut to the heart, as it were. You're just not ready to be saved. You're not ready to embrace the gospel for what it is because you can't understand the solution without understanding the problem. And you can't appreciate the cure until you first come to terms with the sickness and the diagnosis. And that's what we see happening here in verse 37. And in their distress, these people here, they ask Peter the most important question anyone can ever ask. What shall we do? That's the only question in life that really matters in any ultimate sense. What shall we do? That is, what shall we do to be saved from our sins? And we see Peter's response to that in verses 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, "'Repent and be baptized, every one of you, "'in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, "'and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, "'for the promise is for you and for your children "'and for all who are far off, "'everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself.'" So that's what Peter tells them. The key phrase there, of course, is to repent and be baptized. Repentance means not just feeling sorry for our sin, but actually turning away from our sin. It refers to a, a change of direction where instead of running towards sin, you turn around and you begin to run toward Jesus and repentance is the response to the gospel that's consistently called for in the book of acts and is always either explicitly or implicitly linked with faith in Jesus so sometimes you find the God, the, the apostles calling for repentance without explicit mention of faith like here sometimes you find them calling for faith without explicit mention of repentance And then sometimes you find them mentioning both. And that reflects the fact that repentance and faith are really two sides to the same coin. They're inseparably intertwined. So whenever we read faith in the text, we should read that as a repentant faith. And whenever we read repentance in the text, we should read that as a faith-based repentance. And then Peter says, not only do they need to repent... But they also need to be baptized. And unfortunately, this is a verse that has been, I'll just say, wildly misunderstood in some circles. Some will point to this text and argue that water baptism is necessary for salvation. That would be the Church of Christ denomination, the the Christian church denomination as well, just everything in that what's called the Restorationist movement will take that view of this text. And yet not only does that contradict the just the clear teaching of Scripture in other places, just passage after passage in the New Testament that clearly teach that we are saved through faith alone. Repentant faith alone But also, that's not the way the context of Peter's statement here in Acts 2 would lead us to interpret his statement. And so what is Peter saying then? Well, the Greek word, translated as for in this verse, can also mean on the ground of or on the basis of. So Peter would be saying, repent, and then be baptized on the basis of the forgiveness of sins you've already received. Uh, we can find a very clear example of that Greek word functioning in this way in Matthew 12:41. Uh, that verse says of the people of Nineveh that they repented at the preaching of Jonah. The word "at there is the same Greek word translated for" in Acts 2:38. And obviously, in Matthew, right, the preaching of Jonah was the basis of their repentance. And their the, the repentance didn't bring about Jonah's preaching. That wouldn't make sense. Rather, it was Jonah's preaching that brought about their repentance. And likewise, in Acts 2.38, the people's baptism didn't bring about their forgiveness. Rather, their forgiveness led to them being baptized. They were baptized on the basis of their forgiveness. So in summer here, Peter is calling on his readers to or his hearers to repent, which is the means by which forgiveness will be extended to them, and then to be baptized to show or display their forgiveness of sins. Uh, Peter expected his converts to be baptized as a symbol of their forgiveness and as a way of making it public, not as a means of obtaining that forgiveness. And that is probably something that just with the number of people we have here this morning, I'll just say that is probably something that several people here this morning uh, need to take into consideration, just being baptized. Like if you are a Christian, you need to be baptized. Although baptism certainly is not necessary for salvation, it is necessary for obedience to the Lord. And so if you have not yet been baptized by immersion after conversion, then that is something you need to do. Uh, I mean, just, just look at the book of Acts if you're wondering about that. You know, Go home, read all 28 chapters in the book of Acts. You will not find any such thing as an unbaptized Christian. The, the whole concept of that would be, have been foreign to the early Christian mind. And then moving forward in Acts 2, we find Peter's exhortation to his hearers in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Think about that. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Guys, let me just say... (laughs) Every generation is a crooked generation. And so if you want to be a Christian, doesn't matter when you live, where you live, you are always going to be swimming upstream. You're going to have to make the choice every day of your life whether to live for the approval and the applause of the world or whether to live for the glory of God. You know, it says of many of the Jewish religious leaders in John 12, 43, that they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And that's why virtually all of them rejected Jesus. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Don't let that be true of you. Don't let what was true of them be true of you. Your eternal salvation depends on your willingness to renounce the glory that comes from man. And to leave behind all concern about what this world might think of you. But you've got to be like Lot. In Genesis 19, as he was forced to flee for his life from the city of Sodom, he had to flee without a second look back. And so do you. So do you. And returning to Acts 2, we see the incredible result of Peter's sermon. That 3,000 people Come to faith in Jesus. Verse 41 So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Imagine that <laughs> 3,000 people. So the simple progression of this chapter is that the Holy Spirit comes, Peter preaches, and thousands are saved. It's through the simple preaching of the gospel that the church is born. And I know this might sound like a radical idea, (laughs) but why don't we keep doing that today? (laughs) Why don't we strive to be a church that relies not on gimmicks or entertainment Or I'm putting on a show for people. But rather on the simple, unadulterated preaching of the gospel to sustain and grow the church. You know, we talk a lot about being gospel-centered around here. And part of what that means is that we don't just affirm an accurate view of the gospel in our doctrinal statement, but that we actually put our confidence in the power of the gospel to reach people. The gospel is plan A. And we don't have a plan B. Like either God blesses our proclamation of the gospel or this ship is sunk. Either the wind of the Holy Spirit blows and draws people to Christ through the faithful sharing of His message, we're not go- or we're not going anywhere, or nothing will happen. And we're obviously not the biggest church in town or the fastest growing church in town, but I think it's nevertheless fair to say that God has blessed our approach. Not only have we seen the gospel transform people's lives in some radical ways. But our church is also, uh, for me at least, just such a joy to be a part of. Um, It's the kind of church that I am just so grateful that I get to be a part of it. Uh, For example, back when our church first started, we are, the couple that was leading music for us very suddenly and unexpectedly wasn't able to do that anymore. And at the time, we didn't have the resources that we do now. And so we, our options for getting someone else to lead music were very limited. And so for 10 months, we just didn't have anybody. Like our music program consisted of me pushing play. On the Amazon Music app on my phone, with an empty stage. Like that was, that was it. Some of you here, a few, you probably remember that, right? And uh, that that went on for ten months, and obviously that was a difficult time, right? I think everyone wants to have live music, but still, even during that time, it was such an encouragement for me to see that Jesus. Really was the main attraction of our church because throughout those 10 months, we didn't lose a single person, member or regular attender. In fact, I think we even had a few families start to to attend our church during that time. And that just showed that Jesus really was the main attraction of the church. Like when everything else went away, Jesus was enough. Like people came to the church because they really loved Jesus. And they kept coming throughout that season because they wanted to hear more just about Jesus and the the glories of Christ and the wonders of the gospel. He was, and I hope is still, the main attraction. And what a blessing it is to be a part of a church like that. Our confidence is in the power of the gospel to sustain and grow this church. And also, for those who are Christians, let me encourage you in your own life, individually, and in your, your own missionary efforts to put your confidence in the power of the gospel also to, to make an impact on people. It's not about how smooth you are or how smart you are. All right? Just share the gospel and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to use that to do his work in people's hearts. You don't have to have a lot of personal charisma or be able to speak with eloquence or know all the right answers to questions people might ask. Now, none of that is truly essential. Remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, and when I... So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So it's not about you and your eloquence, your intelligence, your sophistication, but about the power of God working through the gospel. Let that be the source of your confidence. It's kind of like swinging a hammer. You know, when you swing a hammer in the proper way, you're not the one doing most of the work, are you? It's the weight of the hammer that's doing the work. And similarly, when you share the gospel, just put your your confidence in the gospel itself as the Spirit uses it to do its work in people. We can plan. And we can water with the confidence that God will bring the growth.